Every week we do a Q&A with interesting and accomplished members of the adaptive community to find how they persevered, how they innovated, how they built communities, and how they found solutions. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Welcome to the Name Tags Chat Podcast. Today we have Mike Shalapi, who is a four-time medalist in the Paralympics, wheelchair basketball player, two gold, two silver, two-time world champ, wheelchair basketball hall of fame in Springfield, Massachusetts. So in the in the uh, basketball hall of fame, Utah top 50 athletes of the century. He's a great guy. He's been a friend for a while. Mike, thanks for joining us. Good to be here, Chris. Thanks for that kind introduction. I asked my mom why she doesn't say all those things. And she says, cause she knows me. So I appreciate you making that kind introduction. Well, the other thing that I had read, and I didn't, and I didn't know if it was still true or not, was that you were the only wheelchair basketball player who competed in four successive Paralympics. Is that still true? You know, I don't think it's still true, but I am quite certain I was the first. So, because obviously I hit those early games, you know, back in '88 through uh, 2000. So, yes. Yeah, and you were saying, as we were waiting, you were saying that it's going to be 45 years for you in a wheelchair right now, and, and you're going to turn 60, so you're 15, if my math is correct. Yes. Wow, 45 oh. years. Did, did, you, did you know? Like, I mean, I, I remember somebody saying to me when I was in the hospital back in 1988, after I broke my back, they said, you won't be in a wheelchair for, for more than 10 years. They'll figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Do you think you'd be in a wheelchair for 45 years? You know, I didn't know, um, but the spinal cord is pretty complex and I know they're trying to figure it out, but no, I had no idea. You know, I, I've been in a chair, golf in sports terms, three quarters of an entire game. So yeah, three fourths of my life I've been sitting on my rear end so it's been a long time but it's been a good time that is really interesting too because i remember at one point somebody asked me when's your half-life and that was half of my my life walking half of my life in a wheelchair yeah. which for me was in 2009 i think i've done the math and it was actually march 13th of 2009 but so you've gone from half-life to a third of your life to yes. now a quarter of your life <laughs> yes walking yes. do you celebrate those demarcations yeah, at all real encouraging conversation we're having no no you know, it's really i mean for me it was interesting to look back on it and say okay wow this has been half of my life and and it's sort of like what's the celebration what are you going to do how can you sell because obviously you know tra tragic event yeah but you've done some absolutely amazing things too. Yeah, it's it's weird. Uh, so I got hurt on Veterans Day and every year that, that rolls around, it's kind of a day of somberness a little bit, mm -hmm. but it's become more a day of gratitude for me. I'm still alive, life's good, uh, you know, so I don't sit and get all bummed about it. It is what it is and I was throwing a curveball and I've hit a few and missed a few. And, uh, but I, I'm very blessed to be alive in a wheelchair that long. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a funny one. Mine was December 20th. So five days before Christmas. Oh, joy. And, and it is, it's sort of one of those weird days that I think I can't quite make full sense of what the day is. And because in some ways, some ways it's a tragedy in other ways, it really is a celebration as you're saying, because I never would have been the best in the world at anything. And I became the best monosphere in the world. I mean, and, and this is similar to you in some ways in that I'm a higher level injury. And back in 94, I was able to win the downhill and beat all the monoskiers in the world, which in a lot of ways is about the ability as opposed to the disability, which is part of what we're trying to heighten you. So they talk about you as a class one. Is that is that a one point uh, on, on, in basketball? Can you describe yeah, yeah. what that so, means? Yeah. So as you know, Chris, you and I have similar injuries. Right. So we don't have all our core muscles, which makes that all the more unbelievable, which you did in a monoski, by the way. But yeah, so they give us a classification. 
then they put a team on the floor. And like if you're an amputee that's got all your core muscles and stuff, you might cost your basketball team four points. Mm -hmm. I cost our team one point. And you get to only put 15 points on the floor. So there's a mix and match of disabilities. And so I like to think that as a class one, I was one of the best you know, class ones in the world for quite a few years. But yes, uh, your disability definitely has to do with uh, you know, your classification and how they use you in wheelchair basketball. Well, I mean, but it's also, so yeah, I mean, obviously you were good, right? I mean, you were, you're in the hall of fame. So, so you're pretty good at what you did, but at one tryout, you were the fastest guy on the court, right? 30 people trying out. Wow. You must've did your homework. I just thought I was somebody that knew what he, yes. So they had some drills that we would do, you know, spinning and pushing and uh, you know, I was able, maybe I had my tires pumped up. I don't know, but I was able to do some drills as quick as some people that I wasn't supposed to be able to do them with. So, yeah, my dad was a basketball coach. I couldn't let him down, you know? <laughs> That's so you started playing basketball as a kid oh, yeah. and then, and then you had, you had your injury and then you got back into wheelchair basketball. How did you get back into wheelchair basketball? Because that transition, especially, you know, back when when you had your 45 years ago. I mean, this so 45 years, were you starting back in like an EMJ, like stainless steel? Oh yeah. Founder. Stars to prove it. Yeah. Armrests, big front tires, metal spokes. Yeah, it, you know, I just got hurt, Chris, and I love sports and, and I realized they still had sports and it started to feel a big, a big part of that identity that I'd lost. Yeah. And it kind of helped me put myself back together and it became a passion and I found out they had national teams and international teams. And so at first, I will be honest, at first, I'm like, no. I'm not hanging out with a bunch of slow, disabled people on the basketball court. But I found out fairly quickly that there were a lot of good athletes out there. And so it just became part of my world. And uh, it really was very therapeutic for me. Was there a local team? Were you able to go to like an open gym or how did that end up working out? Well, I played on my own in the churches and at the high school. Uh, but I would practice with the Utah team. The first team I ever played on, they were called the Rim Riders. And now we're the Wheeling Jazz, Utah Jazz. And I coach the Wheeling Jazz now. But anyway, uh, I played on a team in LA, a team in Phoenix. But yeah, they have teams uh, in different states around the United States that are all part of the National Wheelchair Basketball Association. So, so it's out there. I'm just grateful that some people recruited me and believed in me and helped me get the right chair because as you know, equipment is a big part of sports in a wheelchair. So, yeah. Well, especially you, you probably were not the fastest back in that 50 pound E and J chair, but yeah. as you got a better chair, the, the equipment helped you. I mean, not that everybody else didn't have similar chairs, but it probably helped you as a higher level injury more than some of these guys who, you know, who had full range of motion and all that stuff. The first time I went out, I got on a basketball court and got a ball. I thought, okay, all right. I mean, I know how to do this. And I kept just drilling the front of the rim. Yep. Like, boom, boom, boom. I, it, was, it was one of those that was one of the more frustrating things that it seemed like I couldn't get it over the top of the rim. Yeah. I mean, you're a Hall of Famer. Did you have the same experience that I did or I, were, were, you, were you good right away? No, no, I did the exact same thing because I played so much on my feet. Yeah. And I was just getting into high school and it's all about the legs and the hips and the footwork. The first shot I took, same thing, Chris, fell five feet short and I was bummed out. And my dad knew it and started using my wrists and hands a little more, get a little momentum as you push the wheelchair, get a little momentum, that helps. But yeah, it, it's totally different shooting, sitting down with just your arms versus standing up with your legs. How much of the interaction was there between you and your father on the basketball side? You said he was a basketball coach, but it's a little bit different. It's the same sport, but it's a, a little bit different. How much was he able to help you out? You know, 
he didn't help me so much in the wheelchair game, but he was my coach all the time on my feet. And so that all transitioned, passing, shooting, position, you know, it's, it is like you said, the same game. We just use tire instead of gym shoes and it's a little different, but my dad never coached me in wheelchair basketball, but we were all about basketball in our family. He was a high school basketball coach. I had brothers and sisters that played college. He would follow me around the world at the Paralympic games. And so it, it, it was hard for him. You know, when I got hurt, it really was very difficult on my dad because I was kind of like his prized child getting into my glory days and then gone. And so it was, it was hard. A bit of a transition, that's for sure. One of the things they talk about with you, though, was your, was your court vision and your positioning, particularly defensive positioning. And it, that, I would imagine, is something that came from growing up with your father and knowing sort of the, the flow of the game, because the flow of the game is the same, right? Even though you get two pushes before you have to dribble, you don't have to dribble the whole time. I mean, some people do, but... Yeah. But I'd imagine the the your basketball sense or what they call like your basketball IQ came from your father and transitioned pretty well, didn't it, to uh, to the wheelchair game? Oh yeah, oh absolutely, yeah. Passing, court position, shooting, the mental part of the game, understanding the clock. Yeah, no, that was all semi well ingrained in me, even at fifteen years old. Uh, you know, but it, it's, there's no doubt. I mean, a lot of times people will get hurt and uh, they've never played basketball before and they come out and we teach them and give them a chair and they, they figure it out and they become good. But it does help that I played ball since I was four and five years old. It, it really is the same game. It's just in a wheelchair, you don't have lateral movement and you, you, like you said, I can stop another person from going where he wants to go. We're in able-bodied basketball. If somebody wants to run across the court, they can run across the court. So, it, it, but yeah, it, it, it started when I was young and it, it, it transitioned very naturally for me, yeah. Yeah, and being a class one, in a lot of ways, you often assume that that is the person who is getting in somebody's way, right? That you're, yeah. you're effectively like a road cone out there sometimes. It, it sounds like you were not a road cone, but sometimes that's that's the yeah the, the the role of the class one is okay you get in the way and let the good guy get open and go score yeah yeah i mean a little bit of that you know hey i you know locally i've scored 20 and 30 points plenty of times but when you start talking international olympic stuff you know if i chip in my eight or ten points and set some good picks and play some good defense and throw a few assists you know I, i'm a little bit more of a role player uh, at the international level as a class one than I am like a star player, which you might be at your local level. So, yeah. Is it, is it more of a strategic game in wheelchair basketball than, than like regular basketball where we're, we're, yeah. I mean, it is a fair amount of space that you have to get around somebody as opposed to kind of getting, getting a little window of opportunity like in the NBA or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, the, the wheelchair, the biggest difference in a wheelchair is, like I said, you can't move laterally and you're kind of always getting in each other's way. So if you can picture a defender going out to guard the three-point line, well, when he goes out to guard the three-point line, I can now stop him from going back under the basket, the defensive guy. So there's what they call pick and roll, where you use your wheelchair, you hold them out, you roll to the basket and we create a lot of five on fours, four on threes, uh, transition basket, you know, is very important. But in wheelchair basketball now, three pointers are part of the game. Uh, it's, but yeah, it's, you know, I don't know, it's more complex because of the chair, but it's actually more simplified that most of the game is all about pick and roll. It's not a one-on-one -on -one game. You know, in the NBA, they might give a couple guys on any team the ball and let them go do their thing and they can score. That's not the case so much in wheelchair basketball. You have to work as a, as a team. Right. And that's what I was, I was asking really about the idea of it being more strategic in the team play. And we, we do this and there's this play. And when did it, when did you find out that you were good? You said you started working on your own 
you're in the in the gym by yourself you're at the church by yourself and then you start playing with these with 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 the local group when did you realize that hey you might really have a chance or did you realize right in the beginning you know i i didn't know what to expect i went out and most of them were adults you know 20s 30s even in their 40s and uh, I, I fairly quickly realized, oh, I'm as fast as you. I can shoot as good as you, but I was young. I was small. I was a little bit intimidated. And so I just fit in, did the best I could. And they pretty quickly realized, oh, this little kid over here with dark hair, he can, he can make some shots. And they started to, to trust me. And, you know, I grew and then I got into high school and then college. And so it was just kind of an evolution. But I I definitely didn't dominate at first, but I, I realized I, I can do this. I, I can hang with these older people. And so it was fun. Was there a college program? Because there are college programs now. Was there a college program when you went through or not? There were not. Chris, I actually had to pay for my own way to college. Can you believe that? Oh, I'm sorry, the travesty. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's such a cool thing now. These young kids that play on these junior teams, they go to colleges, U of I, U of A, whatever, Alabama, whatever. And they get scholarships and they're trained from when they're young and they travel and their parents follow them around. And they have fundraisers. It's the young, the juniors game is really cool. Yeah. Yeah. They're playing, playing nationally and sometimes even internationally at a really young age. Yeah. And you can play wheelchair basketball at a high level, you know, well into your thirties. And like an able-bodied person, not so much, maybe a few. But in a wheelchair, maybe it's just to use your arm. I don't know. But you can play a little bit longer at a high level in in wheelchair basketball. Yeah. There's not the pounding that you have, like the leg pounding of the the knees, the hips, the, the ankles, that kind of thing. But anybody who's gone out and played wheelchair basketball, if you have not played in a while, your hands turned a hamburger yeah really quickly because it's all starting and stopping and you're trying to grab the push rings and they're heating up and what what goes for a wheelchair basketball player it's not going to be your knees it's not going to be your your ability to elevate i'm assuming right it's just age and you start to slow down and weaken but yeah like you said blisters and injuries are part of the game shoulders we all know shoulders uh, injuries are part of the game. I like to joke and say we're all on the disabled list, but uh, it's just um, like in like in wheelchair, like this is a, this is like an everyday wheelchair. Right. The wheels are straight up and down. It's just an everyday chair. But when you play basketball, the wheels slant out. It's called camber, and that helps you turn quicker, and it also protects your fingers from becoming even more hamburger. So. Uh, yeah, the chairs are very important, to, but uh, I would say it's the shoulders over time or just the just the motivation to keep playing. You know, Tom Brady, it's unbelievable to me that he can be playing quarterback in the NFL at age 45. I mean, my gosh, is he ever going to lose his testosterone? I mean, that's unbelievable to me. So, yeah, but. And he told us he was going to do that. Oh, yeah. He, he told his wife he was going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that, that might be an entirely different discussion. I think they're having a discussion right now, but I think, so too. <laughs> I think that might be happening. How much you were talking about the camber and some people might not know how many degrees of, of camber do you have? Because I mean, the ability with those chairs, like I was talking to Elena Nichols and she was demonstrating that you can do this, that you can do a 360 in your basketball chair without actually touching the hand rings. Well, yeah. So everyone's different. Now they have, so the wheels, the camber, it can be anywhere from very slight camber, a couple of degrees to very extreme camber, like 16 or 18 degrees. Right. Um, and there's advantages to both, but that camber, it's not going to help you speed straight ahead, but man, you can turn quick without falling out. You know, have straps and wheels in the back. So we don't fall over backwards. And so you know, unless, unless you have enough balance, you don't worry about all those straps, but I needed straps. So anyway, the camber is important. You know, those chairs, you can just spin, you know, you can literally almost spin them with your hips. Yeah. You can just get them spinning. It's such an advantage. I mean, it's so, the game has progressed so much, but it has progressed with, it would be like Chris, like playing basketball in high heels. 
you know, 30 years ago trying to play basketball in, uh, you know, like uh, business shoes or whatever. And so it's a big difference to be in a sports chair. You have tennis chairs, basketball chairs, you know, racing chairs. So yeah, equipment's, but the basketball is the same. The hoop's the same. The court's the same. Referees still have a jump ball. All that's the same. Right. The equipment is important. Yeah. Well, and the equipment helps you. I remember, I mean, we're talking about the first time out there hitting the front of the rim and then just the coordination of trying to trying to dribble and you end up dribbling it off your wheel or dribbling it off your foot or those kinds of things. And then feeling so static too, that, okay, you catch a pass. Well, I need to move. Hold on a second. Now I need to push in order to move. Yeah, I've only got one hand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's one hand, but to watch wheelchair basketball as somebody who uses a wheelchair every day, yeah. To me, it's mind-boggling how fast you guys are, how seemingly it, it almost seems like you're not really pushing in order to, to gain this space. It almost looks like, to the outside person, it almost looks like you guys are running. You were probably part of that, a bit of that progression, right? Going back from the original chairs that you were in to some of the lighter, faster chairs that are more maneuverable. Did, I mean, that was, it's gotta be weird because the equipment was happening at the same time that you were getting better as an athlete and progressing as well. Did, did you see one versus the other or did they just work in concert? Oh no, I, I was in those old ENJs you were talking about without any camber. And I'd go to practice and take the armrests off and then I'd push and hit my thumbs and big scars uh, so I was definitely in that transition uh, and yeah, the equipment was uh, huge and the game has come so far and it, you know, it gets in your blood. You know how sports are. It doesn't matter if you're in a wheelchair on your feet, competing and getting yelled at by your coach. And it, there, sports is sports and wheelchair sports are awesome. And I did get to see them go through sort of their infancy up to now. I mean, you were talking about dribbling a basketball. Uh, you know, it used to be kind of like you'd put the ball in your lap, you'd push, and then you'd dribble. Now, somebody can dribble and push. Yeah. And they can dribble and push as fast as if they didn't even have a basketball and were just pushing. They get that skilled with the ball and the push and the dribble and flipping it over. Yeah, it's behind the back. It's, it's impressive. We don't have between the legs, though, Chris. No, no dribbling the ball between the legs. Well, it's good to hear that there's still something out there That'll be for, for the next generation, right? Next generation. What was it like when you made your first Paralympic team? This is back in 88, right? This is Seoul, yeah. which, is, which is really important because Seoul was the first venue that hosted both the Olympics and the Paralympics. I mean, granted, you had like, Rome back in 1960, but sort of in the in the modern times, you had Seoul that hosted the Olympics and then hosted the Paralympics the way that we do now, two weeks later. Same city, same venue, same. Yeah, it's 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 I mean, in your soul, it makes you feel proud. Like, whoa, I went from being disabled. My dad never thought I'd play again. And now I'm playing at something way beyond high school or even college. And so it's a it's kind of a pride thing of this is really cool. And it was in its infancy. Uh, I was a student at Arizona State and I was very young. I tried out, I made the team and you're sitting there. You think you were gonna out. make the team? I wasn't sure, but I had a good camp and they took a chance on me. And I remember sitting there and they're reading the 12 names. And you know, there's five or six, you know, we're gonna make the team, the stars. And then I got to my name and I heard my name. That was very cool. I was like one of the youngest. I might think I was the youngest on the team. And so it was just uh, very, it's so, it's just a, a neat feeling to represent your country. It's different. There's something about, you know, you, there's something about having USA, red, white, and blue. You're not representing Utah and I'm not representing Mountain View High School in Orem, Utah. It's the Olympics. It's, it's neat. And then, you know, the flags and the, the people speak all those different languages and 
You go back and you eat in the Olympic Village with cool people from other countries. You know, I'm, I'm telling, I'm telling the people that are watching, but Chris, right. you know very well what I'm talking about. Yeah. What was it like when you came? So during the summertime, you went and competed. Then you returned, I'm assuming, to Arizona State. What was it like to return to Arizona State as a Paralympian? And and that was that was a goal. No, that wasn't a goal. That was a bronze medal, right? I uh, know in '88 we won the gold. Oh, you won the gold in '88. Yeah, we beat Holland, and you know they give you the gold medal. They put it around your neck. They play the national anthem, and you fly home on a plane. And you know, I think I did a couple little newspaper articles or you know, maybe in the Arizona State newspaper, but it by no means was, you know, like some NBA player coming back or, so there was a few people that knew, but it was just more of a personal thing for me, an accomplishment. And I knew, you know, I knew what I'd done and who I'd done it against, but very few people back then even knew much about wheelchair basketball. And now in, the, in Utah here in Salt Lake City, if I ask somebody, hey, have you ever heard of the wheelchair jazz? Have you ever seen wheelchair basketball? I would say pretty close, Chris, to half. Say, so, oh yeah, I've seen that at a halftime or on TV. And so it's, you know, it's just a different world. You know, people look at you a little bit differently if you're in a wheelchair. But I, there weren't like, I wasn't like some celebrity coming back to Arizona State. But, yeah. What did, your, what did your dad say about that experience? My dad loved it. My dad still to this day, and he's in his early 80s. One of the highlights of his life is having a good excuse to travel the world with my family, my siblings, my, my mom, and watch me compete in four games over the course of, what, 16 years? And so, uh, yeah, it's, I, 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 I've made my dad proud in that way. And because I, I know he was kind of angry at my friend that shot me. Right. And I know he didn't think I would ever play sports again. And I didn't know either. And I don't definitely don't have high school wheelchair basketball, but I, I, I hope I've made my dad proud. Yeah. I would imagine that that was in some ways like representative of your recovery, even though, you know, you'd, you'd left the hospital, you'd started playing ball, but this was like reaching that top point. It's like, oh, he's okay now. I don't need to worry about him. Was, was that some of the thought too? I think so. I think I kind of knew that I had reached the top level of wheelchair sports, you know, gold medal. Um, and it would kind of, as my life's evolved, you know, through my sports, uh, then you start sharing your experiences and you start enjoying recruiting new people to play or coaching or teaching. So I think, it's a natural evolution of an athlete, especially a sport like wheelchair basketball that's given so much to me. I literally put my life back together. So I have this desire to give back. And, you know, we started the Utah Wheel and Jazz in 1990. And here we are 30 years later, still going strong, top 10. So we're, I'm proud of what we've been able to accomplish to help people like me have an opportunity like I have. I'm imagining that it really is the love of the game yeah. as well. Is that, is that what it felt like then and what it continues to feel like? And also what you're sharing with the new people who come on board as the coach? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's the love of the game, but it's, it's the love of what the game does for people. Mm -hmm. especially people that are disabled that don't even know if they can get dressed or drive a car or get married or have a job but when they can play basketball and they can interact with another mentor that shows them how to use hand controls or i'm married and i have kids i think they catch a vision so it's sports but it's i think in wheelchair sports it's even a little bit more at least it was for me. Is that what helped you sport? Is that what helped you to kind of fill out the rest of your life in some ways to have that confidence yep. to, to start a family, to, to go out and create a profession, these kinds of things. Oh, yeah. When did my, all that happen? 
yeah, so I was in the hospital, went through, you know, intensive care, couple months in rehab, back when insurance would pay for a couple months in rehab. And a guy named Mike Johnson lives here in Utah, double amputee, lost his legs in Vietnam, mm-hmm. came to the hospital and visited me. We played table tennis. He talked about his wife and kids. My mind said, wait a minute, how did he get here? And I realized he drove there. So I didn't know anybody in a wheelchair, like before my accident, I'd see people in the mall, but I didn't know. And so I met Mike and knew about him and his life. And he was an inspiration and mentor to me, brought me out to play basketball. He'd pick me up every Thursday night. We'd drive to Salt Lake, we'd practice, we'd go through the drive-through on the way home. Here he's a 30 year old and I'm a 16 year old. And it just meant everything to me. And I'm still, I'm still close to Mike uh, to this day. And, uh, and so that's, that's what it meant to me. And then to get on an airplane, travel, and play teams from other states. And so anyway, you can probably sense my passion uh, for it, but I, now I just enjoy giving it to the next generation. Well, it is, it's an entirely different community than what you experienced in the hospital. I would imagine, I mean, for me, it was an entirely different. Mm-hmm. I was in the hospital and I couldn't wait to get out of the hospital. Yeah, yeah. But and when I, I got into sport, then I, then it was like, oh, we have a shared, a shared purpose, a shared motivation, a shared desire to, to get into this sport and go do something and push yourself as far as you want. And you're like, oh, well, this is, this is the same. I'm the same person and they're the same people and they're pushing me because they're better than I am. And yeah. And, you, and you're, I mean, skiing or racing, Chris is, you know, a little bit more of an individual thing, but but you're still seeing other people that are inspiring you. And, and I just, um, I just know that I needed those mentors and I, I just did. And, uh, you know, I know you've been an amazing mentor to so many people. In fact, I should interview you on a podcast, Chris, forget talking (laughs) about me. Let's talk about you, but, uh, it's you and I definitely our worlds were changed we left the hospital and I will admit I'm like I'm not going to hang out with disabled people there was a little bit of that in me I'll admit I'm too cool you know and I did have my high school friends and I I mean it's not like I just hung out with disabled people but I had that little niche of wheelchair friends that understood that side of my world I was still my dad and mom's kid and brother and sister's brother and all that. But I had this little world over here that even my high school buddies hardly knew anything about. And uh, so, yeah. Did any of them come and, and jump in a chair and play basketball yeah. with you? Oh yeah, I'd take them bowling or we'd, we'd do a wheelchair basketball assembly at the high school and we'd put all the students and teachers in wheelchairs and play against them. And yeah, so they, be, they got a little bit of a glimpse of it, but not, not deep into the world of a wheelchair. You know, you and I both know that there's a whole lot to being in a wheelchair besides pushing from point A to point B. There's a whole lot more, but that's what people see. And so that's reality. That, that is definitely reality. So you were, I mean, 15 years old, that's a tough time for a lot of people in their lives and and obviously it was a little bit tougher for you when did you get I mean because you talk about having a family one of the biggest concerns is am I ever going to get a date I mean you you jumped like way ahead to a family yeah yeah I uh I had all those thoughts you know my girlfriend dumped me right after I got hurt you wonder if girls ever liked you again and I remember the time I got the guts up to go to a school dance and a girl asked me to dance. She didn't know what to do. And then she sat on my lap and that was good. And so it was a, a constant gradual thing of, oh, maybe girls can see past my chair, but I still lack confidence. And then you gain confidence and then, oh, somebody will let me get serious with them. And then, you know, eventually you get married and have kids. It's a whole process, but that was a huge part of being 15 years old. It wasn't just sports. It was relationships and it was girls and it was driving cars and going to school and getting, being able to get through a door and upstairs and 
it was a different world in the 1970s than it is 50 years later, whole different world. Well, I mean, it's a different world, but probably the way that that it's interpreted is the same because I, I remember thinking that the sport part of it yeah. was something that I could control. Yeah. I, right. I could gain confidence in what I could do as an athlete. But the other side of it is, is how do people see me? Yeah. And hard to know. I have this side that I'm like, hey, look at this. I can do some stuff. But the other side, that's that's a lot harder, lot harder challenge, I think, in a lot of ways to to try to hope that people see beyond the wheelchair to see you. When 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 did that I mean, did you end up getting married pretty early, pretty young or I was in college, okay. um, but I, I gained confidence slowly. Mm-hmm. I started to pick my head up and I'd roll down a hallway at school. I mean, I was a student body president, so it made it a little easier, but I would, I would roll down there and people would look at me and. Hold I, on, hold on. You just said you're a student body president. So we're talking about confidence. We're talking about the way that people see you. Oh yeah. They, they must I, have seen you fairly favorably if you were the student body president. I mean, you were, were, well, were you the cool guy in, on, on no, campus? No, Is this what's no. happening, Mike? No, I was probably the guy that they felt bad for. There was no wheelchair and they voted for me. I actually got shot when I was the student body president in junior high. And then okay. I was a student body president in high school. I was, but I, I knew people and they knew me and my story was you know, fairly well known around the community. But I, didn't, I gained confidence over the course of a handful of years. If I went out in public, I would literally, if somebody looked at me, I didn't have weird thoughts. I just let them look at me and I thought maybe they're curious. Maybe they appreciate and respect that I'm out smiling and shopping and out and around and not moping around. I'm doing something. And so I didn't assume that people had all these weird thoughts, even though I'm sure there were plenty that had some uncertainties about what to say to me or how to look at me. But I've never let the world make me angry in that way. And I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for that. That's been a big blessing for me. It, it is funny that you said that. I just went for a bike ride before we, before we got on here. And so often, you know, the, the bike is that like street luge kind of thing that you're basically like lying down pedaling. And I get some of the strangest looks <laughs> And it, and it really is, it's like, it's like I'm on television kind of thing that, that there's no actual interaction between us, but I get that look of just like, what is that? Yeah. And do you get like thumbs up? Like you're cool to be out here. And other people look at you and then look away. And others look right at you like, hey man, you're awesome. So we don't know, but I do believe you're possibly inspiring some people. And I would hope there's not that many people that are looking, thinking that dude's weird. I, I doubt there's people thinking that, but we, we sometimes think they're thinking that. Well, I think it's, it's just, it's different enough that to your point, it really is about the curiosity. Yeah. And, and I think they get stuck in that curiosity of like, what, what is that? And, yeah. and they get stuck staring, trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. Do they ever roll down the window and say, dude, what are you doing? Does it, I mean, I've do never, you ever get asked? People I've ask. never had that. In, and this has happened, I think, twice, and both in New York City, where I've had kids just laugh at me. And I'm like, hmm, okay, that's not exactly what I was going for, but okay, that's cool. cool. Yeah, they probably don't even know you're in a wheelchair. They probably think you're some able-bodied yeah. guy with skinny legs and you're just out for a ride, you know? Who knows? Working hard, so... Yeah. It's, so, it's, okay. so you got married when you were in college? Yes. Yes. In college. Uh, and did your wife go to ASU as well or? Uh, no, no, no. We, I went to BYU, Brigham Young University uh-huh. before I went to ASU. So it was in that, that period right through there. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Got married, lived in, well, went to Arizona State. Then I went and lived in California, started having kids and back in Utah and been here ever since so i mean there's a whole lot more to these stories but yeah it's been a good journey for sure and now empty nesters grandkids and life's been good five kids 
three grandkids. Yeah, you met one of my daughters. Yes. I just did right beforehand. Yes. Anna. Yes. That's, I mean, you look at the, you look at four Paralympic medals, two world championships, that kind of thing. I think that five kids and three grandkids, uh, that, that <laughs> yeah. rivals any of the medals that you have. Oh, oh, totally. Yes. You know, right over there in my safe, right there are my medals. In your safe. Wow. In my safe, you know, Chris, you got it. And then right over through that door over there is my family and my my life when I'm not doing these kind of things. And so, yes, those things are cool and medals and all that, but you know, it's relationships and it's memories and it's, it's that stuff ultimately that uh, makes you a whole complete person, you know, um, beyond when the game, when the playing days are over, so to speak. Yeah. And, and that happens quickly, but I have to go back to that safe. That looks like a really big <laughs> safe, Mike. Yes. We're talking about six medals there. How, well, how many medals do you have in there? I think there's guns in there. I think there's probably some silver coins in there, Chris. There's a picture of my number, you know, retired wheelchair basketball number 12, the wheeling. Anyway, yeah. So you're right. A lot of my, oh, the picture over there, that's actually playing. Sorry, my camera. That's playing in Sydney. So you can probably see that strap. Yep. around my belly it kind of is like artificial abdominal muscles but anyway yeah so i do have a safe yes you do have a safe okay that's good well it's actually it's interesting what <laughs> on my ski i do i have a seat that's made by aspen seating and and joe Boganic calls calls the strap that comes around he calls it the six pack yeah so that's my six pack yeah gotta have a six pack yeah, I have a six pack. I just un unfortunately leave it with the ski and and end up yeah with, with a little bit with the keg afterwards. I guess you know leave leave the six pack. Well, you you look in good shape, by the way. I'm impressed. Oh, I don't know. You do too. It's it's oh, one of those. Well, I'm not going to point this camera down any lower. You can just look at my beard, my shoulders. <laughs> no, it's uh, you do. You look good. So. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know, it is, it's a, it's, it's a daily commitment. And I said to somebody at one point, actually, I said it in front of a group uh, that I don't really have the luxury of getting out of shape. Yeah. We notice it so much more yeah. just trying to lift ourselves from one place to the other. Yeah. That's, that's a challenge. You know, you, I, I don't think I ever thought that, a, that doing a transfer would be something that I really had to think about. And as you get older, you go, yeah, I need to maintain some strength and, and try to maintain some fitness, you know, yeah, that well, strength shoulders, to weight ratio. Our shoulders are like our legs. So we have to, and if we lose one of them, we're in big trouble. You know, if somebody's got four limbs and they lose a leg, they still function. But you and I, our shoulders are our engines. And so, yes, we have to transfer into cars and on the couches and into beds and get dressed and all the stuff that people probably don't want to hear about right now, but it's, it's real and it's part of life. And uh, yeah, it is. What about when did you start speaking? Cause you made your living. I mean, you did a variety of different things as a, cause you were, you're a financial planner as well, right? Yeah. I was in that world finance. And then I worked in healthcare administration for a big company in Utah but since like 2000, I mean, even before it was schools and all that stuff, but for the last 20 years, uh, yeah, airplanes and corporate events and still get on Zoom calls and I speak it. I love it. I share my story. I sell a few books and then I get out of town before they figure me out. But I do love sharing my story and helping people. I feel like that, that helps me know I've come full circle. When I can share my feelings, I can share my real feelings. Yeah. Was, was that a challenge at some point, you know, as you were, I mean, Doug, you had your, your injury when you were a teenager, you're yeah. not necessarily the most transparent, uh, seeking to be honest and vulnerable as a teenager, right. but getting to that level of honesty, both with a crowd, but even with yourself. Was that a challenge for you? It, it was. It, you know, you always want to keep your image and I have a good attitude, but I, I learned when I shared 
the real feelings of laying in a hospital bed depressed or thinking bad thoughts or when you start sharing some of those really vulnerable bad moments I think people appreciate that and they can relate to it they don't have a wheelchair and I don't need to lecture them they can they can take a story I tell and they can attach it to their own their own life and and I think it helps them kind of know how I overcame it but if I just act like oh I got shot and I'm fine no it took a while. It's like a movie. It starts good, it goes low, and then it ends good. And that's that's kind of I hope what's happening in my life. Yeah. No, I'm I'm right there with you. It, and the whole idea is creating that connection. And I've always felt that in order to create that connection, in order to allow somebody to drop themselves into your life, into what you've been able to do, you have to achieve a level of honesty and a level of transparency that that is uncomfortable, but you have to allow them to interpret what's going on through their own lens, as opposed to telling them what they're supposed to see. And that's the biggest challenge because then you lose control, right? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, very much so, because if your only success, if that's all you've ever known and you didn't have to fight for it or earn it, then it seems easy. I, I don't know about you, but I respect people that lost something and regained it. So when I'm speaking to an audience and I don't know them, but I know them, I know they have pain and I know if they can change and figure it out and try and all those words, if they can do these things, to me, I really respect those kinds of people that are there to try to better themselves. And so I'm just an avenue to share my story, and let them learn. And of course, you have to make them laugh and cry. And but I, yes, I've absolutely loved sharing my experiences and helping other people. What's that feeling like being on stage for you? I was petrified <laughs> as a kid of talking in front of people. Now I do it all the time. Yeah. There, there's something, I mean, there's something in me that like being on stage is like being an athlete to a certain extent, like being in the starting gate at the starting line kind of thing. Yeah. What does it feel like for you? I still get butterflies. I think that's good. I still know I'm going to go out to something, but I don't know if I'll play my best game. I don't know, uh, but I've done it so many times. I have confidence that I'll help some people. Um, I, I don't get, uh, it's not about me as much anymore. You know, it used to be like, let me see, I've got to tell it perfect. I've got to make them laugh. I got to tell them I'm awesome. The introduction has to be perfect. No, now I share my heart. I think of them. I'm trying to speak to a person that might be hurt, just like I was in other ways. And then I let them clap for me. I take that as a compliment. I sell a few books in the back of the room and I get out of town before they figure me out. You know, that's so yeah, Chris, you know, it is, it is kind of like a game. You go out there and it's fun and it's exhilarating, but I don't always know exactly how it's going to go that day. You said that you still get nervous. Do you have any tricks for getting over the nerves? Um, I try to be prepared just like on this call, we made sure the camera was working. Uh, I try to know my audience a little bit. I try to show up in advance, get the tech stuff ready. And I mentally try to get myself, um, sometimes I'll say a little prayer. So I, I just do a few things that get me in the right place going out on stage to really be real. That's, that's my thing. Because when you've told a story so many times, to me, I want to be real. And that's, that's my hopes that I'm really being as real as I can remember being real. 40, like how did I really feel 45 years ago? And I try to be real. And, and that is one of the challenges. Because oftentimes I've heard that the way that you tell the story is the way that it happened. As yeah. opposed to sometimes the other way, right? That it, <laughs> yes. it happened and you have to tell the story from that. And it's like, you tell the story and that ultimately ends up getting to be how it story. happened. 
know. Now, the kid that shot me, so he went to prison for other things. And oh. we connected, you know, maybe 10 years ago, went to lunch. And we were talking and we're friends. And he remembered some situations totally different than how I told the story for the last 20 years. And I'm just like, oh, well, I guess it is what it is. I mean, yes, I got shot. Yes, I got shot by him. But some of the details were not what he remembered. So I found that kind of amusing. Yeah. But he was he was one of your friends, right? I mean, this isn't sort of like a drive-by thing or something like that. Oh, no, he was my neighbor, my friend, uh, my football teammate. Yeah. Did some of his difficulties later in life come as a result of, of accidentally shooting you? I assume so. He had a lot of issues and challenges with his father. Uh, they did move away. He did start robbing banks. He wow. ended up in federal prison like for 20 years. And then when he got out, we connected. And, uh, you know, we've been to dinner and breakfast a few times, but this didn't just happen to me. This happened to him and to his future. And uh, we both take different experience, different things from that identical moment. And I don't know which is better. Maybe those of you that are listening, would you rather be the guy that shot your friend or would you rather be the guy that got shot? I don't know. Yeah. I'm thinking about, yeah. Well, it's one of those things that you saw this, I'm sure in the hospital as well, is that everybody who's coming to visit you is, it feels this responsibility to make everything okay. And there's really nothing that they can do. Whereas you, as the person lying in the bed, have a sense of power and autonomy in that you're the only one who really knows sort of the next step and what you're able to do. Whereas like your friend, like how do you give yourself permission yeah. to move forward? That's a really hard question. And obviously you can't necessarily answer it, but. No, I mean, he had his journey. I had mine. He knew that I had forgiven him. He came to the hospital after he had told everybody I shot myself. And, and then he gave me a book and we had that moment. And I think he knew. And we were in school a while before. The, so he knew that I didn't hold this grudge, but he carried this burden. You know, he shot the athlete. He shot the student body president and blah, blah, blah. He shot, he used his dad's police gun. And it was a thing. And, um, a lot of times people would come to help me, Chris, and they would help me, but I sometimes think maybe I help them too. You know, I, I kind of help them. I hope I help them by letting them see my situation and gain, you know, some courage to go try to overcome their disability or their, I, I like to say their bullet because I get the bullet I got shot with spent two years in me and I, I tell people to find their bullet, but yes, uh, speaking and sharing stories and helping people is really for me, what has come full circle in my, in my life. Yeah. It, it is because you're touching on a bunch of things there that are really interesting. I feel like, like back to lying in the hospital bed mm -hmm. that people feel this responsibility to make you feel better, but then you can see just how uncomfortable they are. Yeah. So as the guy lying in the bed, then you're like, it's going to be okay. And, and they think they're supposed to help you. And you end up telling them, no, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Really? Because you don't want to be isolated, yeah. right? If, if they can't handle you, then you're going to be alone. And so then going, the next step is then going and speaking yeah. where you're connecting with people and sharing a story that allows them to see some of the difficulties that they might've had along the way. So you're creating a sense of community. Did you ever start with that thought of like creating a community or how you might do it? Or, or it's like, Hey, Mike, will you, uh, will you come speak? And, you know, I know it started probably similar to me where yeah. we'll, we'll pass the hat for you or, you know, or whatever, or something, yeah. you know? Sure. Yeah. Churches or schools. You know, I, I, I was willing to share my story, but I didn't really know kind of like, why do they want to listen to my story? Well, you have a cool story. I'm like, oh, okay, you think so? And you build on that, you know? And I, 
I, I learned, Chris, and I'm sure you have as well. And if people came to visit me and I was negative or whiny or complaining or blaming and didn't take personal responsibility, all those things are real. And they would listen and they would offer empathy and they wouldn't come back because I didn't inspire them. They, yes, they came and said, sorry, this happened to you. And, and I made them feel bad and then they never came back. And so I felt a need to want to be optimistic and create the group around me, like you're saying, that if they went to McDonald's at lunchtime during school, they would take me with them because I wasn't gonna be always sad. It's okay to be sad, but it may not build a bunch of people that wanna hang around you too long. So I had to, I don't think I was faking it, but I had to figure out that I am grateful to be alive. I'm thankful. I really can look you in the eyes and say, I'm having a good day. And that, and that became, my nickname as a kid was Happy Chalapi. And I didn't want to be crappy shalappy for very long. So I got back to being just who I am. How, how long did it take for your friends to be able to give you a hard time? Because there was probably the kid yeah. girls thing at first, like, oh, no, no, we've got to be nice to this guy all the time. And then somebody, I'm sure, <laughs> took yeah. the gloves off. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you, you know, they decide to push you down some stairs or pull a prank on you or pull your will off or. Yes, whatever they're going to do. But I, I, I'm like you. It, it tells me they're comfortable around me when they can joke with me or, you know, or, or like they would use the word walk. Oh, sorry, Mike. I'm like, yeah, you really offended me. I can't, can't believe you'd say the word walk around me. You know, it didn't, I didn't even think about it, but they're thinking about it. So we had to get past all of that stuff. What are your so three grandkids? How old are the grandkids? like four like two and like one something like that okay so they, <laughs> yeah. so they don't they don't have a ton of but but i would imagine what do, what do they think of you because they've known you their whole lives right i mean this is yeah what, what, what kind of story do you think like going to kindergarten what kind of story are they going to tell about their grandfather i'll be interested to see i had that perspective with my kids and Sometimes I was show and tell, and sometimes it's just like, well, I mean, I remember my son, when he brought me to show and tell in kindergarten, he realized, oh, not all other dads are in wheelchairs. He connected those dots, you know? And, and I think my grandkids, as they grow up, this is just the only grandpa they knew, and he's just grandpa, and he uses wheels, and he can do most things that other people can do, and it's okay, you know? I hope that's what it is, um, but I'm sure they'll know it's different, different, it, different isn't bad. It's just different. And so, but it, it will be interesting to see as they get a little bit older. As they get that transition, I was talking to a friend last night at an event and she was saying that her kids are getting to that point where she goes to give the kid a kiss goodbye. And he's like, hold on, there, there are people watching. You can't, you can't do that. You know, don't embarrass me, mom, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, I can. <laughs> You'll be okay. <laughs> yeah. It's were, your, were your kids okay with that? They weren't like, hey, dad, don't don't come to school, you know? Um, I don't know. I I maybe, you know, I don't I don't think so. Yeah. Um, I hope it was maybe a cool thing. Yeah. Dad's in a wheelchair and he's pretty cool. But I hope maybe, I don't know. This is what's so difficult is. We don't know. I mean, we got people watching us, me right now, Chris, and I have no idea what they're thinking about this guy. I don't know, but I hope that they can get a feel for my life and my story. And I wish I could hear their story. So whoever is watching in, thank you so much. It's kind of you. It is, it is exactly. And I would imagine that your kids thought that you were pretty cool that you, you did that. You know, I think it is cool when you've spoken at their school or they, you're, my dad's a gold medalist, you know, he's written a book. So those things are, he drives with, like my kids would drive with my hand controls and they thought that was cool. So I think there's cool things about it. 
Uh, but I think when they're in elementary school, I don't know. I don't really know what they're thinking. I'm going to have to ask them that sometime. Well, Mike, we might have kept you long enough Thank you. That, that people can that people can figure you out. And, you know, I don't think you have anything to worry about. I don't no. think you have to get out of town too quickly. I think once <laughs> if they're going to figure you out, they're yeah. going to figure you're, you're all right. They know you're where to find me. Yeah, I might be in the safe. I'm right back here. Yeah. But thank you. Thank you for joining us. It's awesome to connect. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Chris. Totally appreciate it. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed our conversation. The greatest gift you can give us is to tell your friends. Tell your friends to tune in. Tell them you had a great time. We'll have a great guest next week as well. And this will be a traditional podcast. So if you can follow us, if you can like us, we'll continue to bring you great content. And we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks a lot. Take care.